0: Well good morning everybody, good to see all of you this morning. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas celebrating the birth of Jesus, hopefully with family and friends and a lot of food. If you're visiting here with us this morning, uh, we just finished up a series on the Christian season of Advent called Behold God Makes All Things New, and today we're starting a new series called A Very Short Introduction. I was inspired by a little book series uh, by the same title. If you go to their website, they have 692 very short introductions to every topic under the sun. On the first page in the A's, it has adolescence, Abrahamic religions, Adam Smith, and aerial warfare, just to name a few. So you you can go find any topic under the sun and they give you this tiny little book to learn about it. So I'm plagiarizing that idea and we're going to apply it to different characters in the Bible. As you can see on the screen, we're going to talk about Peter, the high priest Aaron, King Saul, Jonah, Tamar, Bathsheba, Miriam, and Mary, Jesus' mother. Now, here's the thing. If you grew up in church, you may know bits and pieces from the stories of these different characters. But what I want to do is spend time seeing kind of the whole narrative, the, the whole arc of their story because we aren't just looking at these characters to learn more factual information about each and every one of them. Uh, You may not care about that if you're not a Christian or devoted uh, to Jesus, uh, and that makes sense. I want to look at each one of these characters because I want to address a bigger existential question that Ben mentioned just a second ago. Can men and women, can we really change? Now, here's the thing. There are two very boring answers to this question. One says, yes, we change from babies to children to teenagers to adults to elderly folks. That's not what I'm worried about this morning. Another very boring answer says, no, we have consistent personality traits over time. That's not what I'm talking about either. My question is, can God really make us better? can messed up, sinful, even wicked human beings be made good, even holy? Because here's why this question needs to bother you if it doesn't already. Christians have believed for 20 centuries that there is something fundamentally wrong with the human condition after the fall. We are made good, and we're made in God's image. But after the fall, we struggle under the power, the enslaving power of sin. You, have may, you may have heard of the doctrine of original sin. There's a lot of confusion about what that doctrine really says. It's not about the first sin ever committed. It's not about sin being original or unique. The doctrine of original sin says that we are sinners because of our origin. We originate, we come from sinners, and therefore we are sinners. And the doctrine says that we don't have to be taught or shown how to sin. From the very beginning, we're slaves to this power at work in our hearts. King David puts it this way in Psalm 51. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We need continual sanctification throughout our lives. We need God to change us. And the question of this series is, can we actually see it? see the effects of that liberation from sin in this life? Can God do it? Can he convert us from sinners to saints? Can he transform us into the image of Jesus? Or, alternatively, is moral change just a farce? Is it a charade? Is it a comforting lie? Can men and women really change? So what we're going to do is look at different characters in Scripture to answer this question because you can't just answer it in one week. So we're going to look at each one of them and what God does in their life or what they refuse to accept from God and see a nuanced but rich answer to this question. And I think one character is just the perfect one to start off this series. But before we get to him, I want to talk about his family. So 2,000 years ago, there was an old man named John who sometimes went by Jonah, and we don't know much about his wife, but we know that he was the proud father of two very rowdy sons. He was a hard worker over a thriving fishing business in Bethsaida, and at the end of his life, he was happy to pass on this fishing business to his two sons. But like every good Jewish father, he didn't want to just pass on a business, he wanted to pass on his faith to his sons, and so he taught them the Jewish creed, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. John also instilled in his two sons the hope that one day or any day the Messiah would come, the long awaited King of Israel. Now, John's son Andrew took his dad's word to heart and, and kept his ear out for any rumors, any rumblings about the Messiah coming, and eventually heard about a prophet named John out in the wilderness. He was baptizing people in the river Jordan in order to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. And John the baptizer spoke with so much authority, so much uh, uh, apostolic mission almost from God to, that, that Andrew just had to follow him. So he signed up to follow John the Baptist. And after years of waiting, John was ministering in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan when he finally saw the Messiah. And he made this declaration pointing at a man named Jesus of Nazareth. John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God ...who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew was one of the disciples of John... ...who heard his declaration about Jesus... ...and without hesitation just picked up all of his belongings... ...and followed Jesus. But he wanted to make sure his brother was included. So Andrew found his brother Simon... ...and told him, we have found the Messiah. And so he brought Simon to Jesus. And Simon listens to his brother Andrew... ...goes out to meet Jesus... And it was right then that Jesus looked at Simon and gave him one of the most famous names in the past 2,000 years. In Aramaic, it was Kepha. In Greek, it was Petros. But in English, he calls him Peter, and it means rock. Now, even though Simon Peter was not one of, not the first apostle to be called, he wanted to be first from then on. He always was trying to get into the conversation, to be out front, to be in charge, to be a leader. He was in the inner circle with James and John, the the sons of uh, Zebedee. He was was present at some of the most famous miracles of Jesus, the healing of Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration on Mount Tabor, Jesus' agony in the garden. Every time the disciples got into a discussion with Jesus, Peter was always the first to speak, always jumping ahead, sometimes even representing the other 11 apostles. He even owned the fishing boat that Jesus would preach from on the lakeside in Galilee. You don't have to read very far to see this special treatment that Jesus keeps giving to Peter. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, which must have made Peter's wife very happy about Jesus, but he also enabled him to walk on water. Many of us know that Jesus walked on water, but Peter did too, thanks to Jesus. My favorite story of Peter and Jesus happens right after a night of fishing when Peter catches absolutely nothing and if you're a city boy like me you think well not catching fish that's an inconvenience but we know to go a night without catching a single fish was a massive waste of time and energy It would have set him back on income and we know with the Roman taxes at the time it was devastating for Peter he would have been livid and then we see this happen Jesus says to Simon, after hours and hours of fishing through the night, hey Simon, put out into deeper water and try again. Let down your nets for a catch. Unfortunately, we don't know the tone of how Simon responded to Jesus, but he does say, Master, I don't know if you know this, but we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. I don't think another cast will do much, Jesus, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. This is Peter's life for three whole years. He gets to be on the front row of Christ's ministry, hearing his teaching, hearing his parables, seeing miracle after miracle, and even being the recipient of some of them, just like this story shows us. But of course, Peter has his blunders and slip-ups over and over again. One of my favorites is when Peter comes to Jesus expecting to impress him. Some of the Jewish rabbis taught that you were supposed to forgive, up to, for, forgive sin up to three times. So Peter says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, how much should we forgive? Up to seven times? He's thinking he's going to get a high five or a congratulatory congratulatory slap on the back from Jesus but Peter is very disappointed because Jesus says without missing a beat actually no Peter 70 times 7 that's how much you should forgive those who sin against you but despite all the slip ups all of the mistakes that Peter makes he comes to the slow but sure realization that Jesus is not just another miracle worker he's not just a prophet he is so much more than that and right as Peter comes to that realization Jesus asks all 12 apostles who do you say that I am the other apostles offer answers all of which are incomplete or just dead wrong but Peter says with confidence Jesus you are the Messiah you're the son of the living God Think about how big of a deal that is for Peter. Remember, Peter's dad, John, raised his two boys, Andrew and Simon, to patiently await this promised king, this Messiah. And Peter is saying that the man right in front of him is that long-awaited king, that Messiah of Israel. The kingdom of Israel had been a wreck for centuries. They were under Roman oppression and rule. But Peter says, truthfully, this man is restoring that kingdom. And right at this most beautiful and truth-filled moment, we see Peter slip up again. It's like watching Peter trip down a flight of stairs. It's painful for him. It's painful for anyone who's watching. Because Jesus then begins to teach them about what it means for him to be the Messiah. And he says, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Jesus says, yes, Peter, you're right, I am the Messiah, I am the long-awaited King of Israel, but guess what? I have to suffer many things, and you know all those respected, honored religious leaders that you've been taught to respect and trust? They're going to reject me. They're going to make me suffer. They're going to plot my death and remove me from the scene. You can just imagine the The color in Peter's face vanished. The pale look that he gives to Jesus, you can imagine his shock, which is why he does this. Brings Jesus aside and rebukes him. You don't get a ton of details of what Peter says, his tone, but you can picture just how condescending this is. Jesus has the mercy to show this clear glimpse into the future of what they're supposed to expect, and now the student rebukes the master. This little tiny human Peter rebukes God incarnate in front of him. He gives the Messiah a lecture. It's so cringeworthy, we can't really put it into words. And Jesus is rightfully upset. And you've got to see what Jesus does next. He doesn't get in Peter's face and yell at him. He turns, looks at the other apostles, and rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. He puts his back to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Imagine the disappointment in the face of Jesus. Imagine the shock and horror and shame that Peter felt at this public failure. And here's the bad news, it actually doesn't get much better, because Jesus and the rest of the twelve apostles head up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and on the night before Passover, Jesus invites some of his apostles to pray with him in a garden called Gethsemane. And Peter goes with Jesus to this garden, and you can imagine just all the mixed emotions that he's feeling, right? He, he will, he'll never forget the incredible experiences of the past three years with Jesus, Jesus' teaching, his grace, his love, and his miracles, but Jesus also frustrates Peter to no end. All these parables without explanations, the way he challenges all these religious authorities, but he welcomes prostitutes and tax collectors, and Peter would never, ever, ever, ever forget the phrase, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is off by himself praying in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter and the others have fallen asleep, but Peter wakes up because he hears this sound outside of the garden. And around the corner comes Judas leading a squadron of Roman soldiers and Jewish priests and Pharisees. Peter is speechless. He he thinks he's dreaming for a second. He's never seen a group like this. They're all enemies. They all hate each other. Why would they be together and especially be led by Judas, who's one of the 12 apostles who knows where Jesus would be all alone by himself without any witnesses. The, clock, the cogs start turning in Peter's mind, and he realizes why they're there. They're not in Gethsemane to have a theological debate with Jesus. They're there to catch him alone. But if Peter is ready for one thing, he is ready for a fight. He calls out to Jesus asking if he should strike with his sword, but before even getting an answer, he drew his sword, swung, and cut off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. And again, Peter and Jesus make eye contact. Wonder if Peter felt proud. I've come to the defense of the Messiah. I've shown that I will fight for him. But Jesus just looks disappointed again. And that's the last thing Peter sees before the mob carries Jesus away. Peter is sitting there in stunned shock, but he decides he's going to follow the mob, but at a safe distance to see what would happen next. And this is what the Gospel of Luke tells us. When some who were there in the courtyard had kindled a fire and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at Peter and said, this man was with him. But Peter denies it. I don't know him, Peter says. A little bit later, someone else saw Peter and said, you're also one of them. He says, I am not. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter replies, I don't know what you're talking about. And right as he finished that last word in that sentence, a rooster crows. And then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter with that familiar face of love and disappointment. And Peter remembers the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter gets up from the fire. He goes outside of the courtyard and weeps bitterly. Ask yourself at this point in Peter's life, what's the difference between him and Judas? I mean, Judas's name is synonymous with betrayal and cowardice and disloyalty, but what's the real difference? Both Peter and Judas had expectations of Jesus that Jesus did not meet. And so at a critical moment, both Peter and Judas betray him, but just in different ways. Judas sells Jesus out for money so that the enemies of Jesus know when Jesus will be all by himself. But Peter, he denies any association with Jesus when the going gets tough. At this point, you might think, well, Peter is the worst possible example of a changed man, right? If we're asking whether or not men and women can change, maybe we think, well, they can, but only for the worse. Simon started out this story as a respectable fisherman working his father's business but by the end of the gospel, this man isn't much better. He's betrayed his friend and rabbi when the going got tough. He's, he's a coward. I want to pause right there, fast forward a few months in 33 AD and tell you another story. There's this apostle named John, one of the sons of Zebedee, And we're told that he's in the temple in a section called Solomon's Colonnade. And some of the Jewish priests, the captain of the temple guard, came up to John while he was speaking to the people. They were upset with John because he was teaching this lie, according to them, that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead. Now, they wish they could just dismiss him as a false teacher. The only problem is that God had just healed a disabled man in front of all the crowds, so they couldn't deny him in public. So what they do is they seize John, put him in jail for 24 hours to stew overnight. They just want to intimidate him. The next day, the political and religious leaders of of the Jews in Jerusalem meet, and they bring John out of jail and question him. They say, by what power or what name did you do this? Remember, John is a young Jewish man. He's being interrogated by the religious leaders of his people. He had been taught to respect and honor them since he was a boy. And John doesn't speak here. There's another apostle who was with him at the time who spoke on his behalf. And that apostle said this. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is disabled and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that the builders rejected, which is the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. It sounds like the words of a brave man. And it's directly from the mouth of Simon Peter. Think about this timeline for a second. This this man has changed over the course of a couple months. Months before this interrogation, Peter denied any association with Jesus. He rebuked Jesus. He chickened out in the end. He ran away from the scene. He had multiple opportunities to own up to the fact that he follows Jesus, but he fails. He doesn't. And just in a couple months, Peter is standing up to the religious authorities. When they command him not to speak, he says, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to God. You be the judges. As for me, I can't help but speak about what i've seen and heard what happened what happened in those few months how did this coward become brave how did this traitor become a friend well at least three things happened jesus rose from the dead if jesus had still been in the tomb there's no way peter would have stood up to the religious authorities Second, Jesus appeared to Peter, and third, Jesus gave his Holy Spirit to Peter and the rest of the church in the upper room. I want to focus on the second thing that happened. Jesus specifically appeared to Peter, and I know that some of you have heard this story a number of times, but I'm going to tell you it again. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he appears to Simon Peter on a beach, and they have some breakfast tacos right on the edge of the water, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, he uses his birth name, not his given name, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, okay, then we'll feed my lambs. Moments pass and Jesus says, Simon, son of John, a second time, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. I just told you that I loved you just a second ago. And Jesus says, okay then, take care of my sheep. Moments pass, and a third time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt, because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, okay then, feed my sheep. It is not an accident how many times Jesus spoke his old name. For each of Simon's three denials, for each of those three critical failures, those three betrayals against his own Lord, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each time Peter says yes, Jesus has reconciled with and reinstated and restored Peter. This is why he's a different man. This is why he's not like Judas, because he is an encounter with the living Messiah, and Jesus changes him, not the other way around. Jesus makes him brave. It's not that he had all of a sudden a change of heart. It's that Jesus changed him. Men and women can change because Jesus can change us. He can turn cowards into apostles. He can turn traitors into friends. We cannot change ourselves, but Jesus can change us. This is the good news of this sermon. Sin is not more powerful than the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts and purifies us, sanctifies us, and that can change you and me for the better. Some of us have made New Year's resolutions or goals. We can't change ourselves, but Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us, can change us for the better. He can make us holy, and that's the good news of a very short introduction to the Apostle Peter. Let's pray. Father, we recognize and confess this morning our sin, the sin that enslaves us, the vices that have a grip on our hearts, the failures of our past, the times where we've had a perfect opportunity to own up to the fact that we follow you and yet we've denied you, downplayed you, ignored you, Father, we own up to that this morning. We confess our sin before you. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts, fill us up, and empower us to change. Not with the aim of self-improvement, but holiness and sanctification to be made saints. Take the ugly, false aspects of our lives and make it beautiful and true. Father, we pray that you would make us more like Peter, not because he's good in his own right, but because Jesus made him good, made him brave, made him a friend of yours. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.